Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 179. Just ahead, Shoals Technology seeing a huge surge in the solar business. And how Walmart and TJ Maxx are managing a big change in supply chains and maybe how inflation is their friend. And the only Saudi company listed in the United States, oil field services company, National Energy Services reunited our guest, our interview with CEO Sharif Fada. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And there are so many ways to listen to the Drill Down podcast, not least of which iTunes and Spotify or Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, whatever. But hit the subscribe button. That way you can catch every single show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. And welcome to the Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. As always, we explain not stocks, not stock stories. We're going to talk about businesses and what's happening at those businesses so we can understand the rest of the world through the eyes of those businesses. And helping me do that is Isaac Webster, our executive producer. Isaac? I love to understand the rest of the world. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> we're so close. We almost yeah, got we're it. We're so close. The whole world. Yeah. We do have a more global show than, than, than normal with our, with our guests later to, uh, in the show. Absolutely, we do. Cool, cool uh, story. And, I, and it kept me from doing a lot of other oil stocks, which I would normally want to do. Um, but... We've got some interesting ones to drill down on today. Well, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, why don't we start with Walmart? You've heard of Walmart. I have heard of Walmart, yes. Uh, trades are to WMT, WMT, and shares have risen 4% over the past five days and 3.5% over the past 12 months. I thought it'd be an interesting time to look at this company um, because there's so much concern about what's going on um, in the in inflation. And uh and supply chain stuff as well. So they reported mm-hmm. a quarter. Let's talk about the quarter briefly. Um, uh, nice, decent growth for the company, in particular in grocery. Uh, their comp store sale, because they were able to capture more market share in the grocery business, their comp store sales were up 8%, which is a pretty big deal. Sam's Club was up 10% I mean, they had a strong, stores. Yeah. They had a strong report. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just prices going up. Uh, 8% rise in membership income at Sam's Club showed that people were shopping. And they're predicting mm-hmm. uh, about a 6% increase in Q4 on the top line, even the bottom line will shrink a little bit. So the question remains, what do we know about um, uh, supply chains and where, you know, what does inventory mean for these guys? Because, you know, interestingly, the inventory that they have in their stores, obviously they try to get turn it over as, as quickly as they possibly can. But inevitably, especially with the problems of supply chains over the last three years, or two years, right? If we, if we take it back to 2020 and when things got really upside down during the pandemic and lockdowns and so on, quarantines. And so uh, it really changed the world of supply chains. We've heard so much about that. And the unwinding of that is starting to happen for these guys. So the stuff that was that was once clogged in the back of the supply chain started to get clogged kind of in the middle and then into the stores themselves. Even as that starts to get reduced as they are able to raise prices at the end of it, it looks like the inventory is maybe more price 
but maybe less stuff. Listen to CEO or CFO of Walmart, John Rainey. It's important to consider if you look back over the quarters of the year, in Q1 when we were the highest, the majority of the, the extra inventory was in supply chain and part of the backlog problem. Then in the second quarter, that balanced more evenly between stores and the total. And in this quarter, at the end of Q3, what we see is, is an increase of 12.4, but the stores are still heavy. So the inventory has moved from the supply chain uh, to a balance, to now it's in the store. And when you look at the, the dollar amount that's up, um, about 70 percent of it, three-fourths of it roughly is inflation, and the rest uh, we can approximate to some pretty significant improvements in in-stock over last year. Um, last year we were we were quite low, so we see a, a really decent improvement in in-stock. And then specifically in your last question, uh, probably around um, something just under a billion, around a billion would be what would we consider excess. Um, that's down pretty significantly, about a third of where we were at the end of the end of uh, Q2. So we're making improvements. Um, apparel in certain categories in GM are, are the heavy categories, and we'll continue to work through those. And you know, just a reminder, we said at the beginning of Q1 we needed a couple of quarters to work through the inventory, and we continue to do that. And then John David did mention in his comments earlier that the, there is room in our forecast to continue making progress on inventory. Uh, but I was I was in an import center last week, and um, the, the inbound is in really good shape. The orders are in line, so I think the team have, have done a really nice job adjusting uh, to the end of the year. I kind of picture this like a like a snake eating a large mammal, right? It's just kind of working its way through the system here. But I think what we're yeah. what these guys sounds like they're really <laughs> they really have worked it out, and uh, they expect that by the fourth quarter, and, and uh, they they will have adjusted to those um, um, inventory issues specifically the inflated value of those inventories such that it won't be such a big problem next year. And it was a pretty positive report from Walmart, I thought. Very positive. And I mean, you know, Walmart's a bellwether for the U.S. economy, right? I did some Walmart shopping in the last month. Believe did it or you? not. Me. Do you, do you shop online or do you, did you no, go to No, I was store? with my son at, uh, his, you know, freshman in college and we had to go supply his, his dorm room. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, you know, where I grew up, our big claim to fame, our big claim to fame in my hometown where I graduated high school, a very small town in Missouri, we had the very first super center ever on the planet. Yeah. Oh, huge deal. Huge deal. Concerning. Anyway. Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to look at a company we've never looked at, never talked about before. Shoals Technology Group. Shoals Technology Group uh, trades under SHLS and shares have jumped over 26% over the past five days. But if you look at a 12-month chart, they're lower by 21%. But a uh, good week for Shoals. What's going on? Solar. This company's in the business of solar. They pro- provide um, a whole bunch of solar stuff um, for big, large-scale solar projects. So cable assemblies, wireless monitoring systems, junction boxes, transition disclosure, enclosures, I should say, um, splice boxes that separate out the um, uh, 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 the power co- as it comes in from all the different panels and so on. Uh, they call these, uh, in, in the business, it's called as EBOS or EBOS systems, electrical balance of system is what EBOS stands for. And uh, uh, this is, you know, the guts of what makes big solar arrays work. And for this company, they've seen a, a big increase in sales. Sales year over year of $91 million in the third quarter, which they just reported, it's up 52% year over year. Earnings up 43% year over year. But the big question is, what will the impact be of the IRA? No, um, not the Irish Republican uh, Army. 
Oh yeah, okay, that's where my mind went. What are you talking about? IRA, Not IRS, the retirement accounts. <laughs> the Inflation Reduction the, Act. Oh yes, the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation yes. Reduction Act provided all kinds of um, subsidies and incentives to yeah. for clean energy and solar in particular. And uh, the combination of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and higher energy prices makes solar look like a really good uh, business for the power companies to be into these large solar arrays um, look a lot sexier when the costs go down through subsidies and the comparisons uh, uh, go up uh, because of uh, the price differential for expensive um, fuel, uh, uh, you know, oil and, and, and gas and so on. So how will the IRA play out? We're just starting to get some clues and it, it's, it's not a huge company, so I won't go on uh, in, you know, the three or $4 billion company, but here is CEO Jason Whitaker briefly about what the IRA means. While we're still waiting on further guidance from the Treasury on certain aspects of the IRA, the bill provides many demand drivers for shoals and the industry. First, as we discussed in our last call, we believe the increase and extension of the investment tax credit, coupled with new incentives for storage and EVs, will accelerate demand for our products. While we still don't know just how significant the effect on demand will be, Initial reaction suggests that the IRA is the most significant piece of legislation for the solar industry to date. Again, the most significant piece of legislation for the solar industry to date. Super the positive IRA. for these guys. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking to Jason actually for a while to bring him on the show. So hopefully um, he will join us soon. Now you make it sound like I was being nice. I didn't know you were talking to him. Well, good. He should come on the show. Or we'll make fun of his company. Yeah. No, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's a threat. No, we just, we just balls and strikes. That's all we do. Call balls and strikes. Corey, what's your next drill down? I want to look at TJ Maxx. TJ Maxx trades under TJX. TJX companies and shares have risen 3% since the start of 2022 and have risen over 12% in a year. A lot of retail. I know we just talked about Walmart, uh, TJ Maxx, of course, the company behind Home Goods, uh, Marmax, Marshalls, Sierra. They reported a quarter with revenues down about three percent to twelve billion dollars. Uh, same store sales down three percent. Comp store sales down two percent. But uh, a kind of a positive report, despite those declines. Maybe not least of which because they kind of lowered the bar uh, uh, with last quarter's results. And then we're able to raise the bar and say things are going to get a little bit better uh, in the next quarter. That's their prediction. They say that the uh, the treasure hunt shopping experience continued to resonate with customers. Do you go into these stores? You're a Marshalls guy, yes? You've mentioned that before. Uh, I have. No, I am not. Ross but, stores. Um, if I must have been, if I, neither. No, but my really? but, you know, my uh, husband, uh, my husband is a treasure hunter, and he, he comes home with a lot of treasures from these stores. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not, uh, that, I'm not. I'm not that guy. To to that, there is a Home Goods in the Hamptons that is the uh, that is the that is the real hookup out there. I think it's in Bridgehampton, and it, it's a um, it's 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 the only deal to be had on that part of uh, in the Hamptons. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Long Island. But um, I thought it was really interesting. So, uh, and I want to tie this to put some broader headlines. We just had this election that produced some really surprising results, where um, a lot of Republicans in a lot of places were running on the idea of. Joe Biden and inflation are ruining the country. Inflation, 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 inflation. And it didn't seem to resonate when the votes were really tallied, even though it did in a lot of the polling. Maybe the polls were bad, and that's my contention. 
But I, I was interested to hear the comments in TJ Maxx when they talked about inflation and when they talked about where they are able to raise prices and where customers are just like, I'm not going to pay that. This is too much inflation. I'm disgusted by this. I'm not going to pay these prices. And what this company really said, and I'm going to let you listen to the CEO, uh, Ernie Herman, in a second, but what they really said is that they've got a lot of price elasticity and that they are, uh, it's a really unusual time for them because they are able to jack price points uh, across the board, whether it's in apparel or hardline goods. And they're finding that they can just, even though their prices are going up, they're able to pass those on to customers without a lot of um, resistance. Here is Ernie Herman. On the macro lens, with regard to the uh, the pricing, we are seeing a very, very little resistance. And I would say our hit rate is in the 90-plus percent in terms of um, success on measuring it. In fact, at one point, I think Scott in his script talked about how our turns are essentially where they were in FY20, which is always a barometer. So we look at uh, pre-COVID, and we, we get all the way down to a SKU level. So we look at categories, we look at departments, and then we go to SKU level, and obviously we zero in on where we've adjusted the retail. And uh, because of what's happened around us where the retails have gone up so much significantly, uh, we have really been so effective at it and hit extremely low resistance. So a lot more, I guess, opportunity as we move forward to keep doing because we've spotted, as you can imagine, we're also spotting places where we've gone up a retail and we can go up again. So you have that dynamic, which is a little unusual because uh, sometimes we do an intermediate price point raise and uh, the goods, whether it's apparel or hard lines, have gone up a couple of price points because remember some of the inflationary hits have been more than just two or three percent. So there are some items that have gone up 10 or 20 percent and we've only gone up the first price point. So all in all of them are definitely more opportunity there, if anything, um, uh, in terms of, in terms okay. of pricing assistance. So maybe, maybe what's happening here with inflation is people don't like inflation, but it's not at such a crippling level that they can't afford it because there's also been wage inflation and people are seeing their paychecks get a little bit bigger. And people have had um, still on the heels of a lot of the relief that they got during COVID from the government that maybe they're not just quite so broke that they can't afford these slightly higher prices and that uh, inflation wasn't the cudgel that it looked like it was going to be in the election and also not the cudgel that will be used against TJ Maxx's uh, different brands and different stores. Well, employment, the employment numbers are pretty healthy. Yeah, that's another part of the US. Absolutely. I mean, people have jobs right now. Yeah, maybe there's some inflation, but they're always looking for deals. And, you know, TJ Maxx has the deals. Well, let's a little, dig a little deeper into the biggest uh, driver of inflation in our global economy, the price of oil, the price of fuel jacked up surely by the uh, Russian um, uh, war against Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. But listen to, uh, to this conversation. I thought a really interesting one with Sharif Fada. He's a, uh, an oil field services company based in Saudi Arabia. It's called National Energy Services Reunited in our fascinating interview right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. 
And welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by the CEO of National Energy Services Reunited, Sharif Fada. Uh, Sharif, glad to have you joining us from Houston. Um, uh, as we would expect from an oil field services company, um, I love the oil and gas industry more than any other because uh, of its simplicity, right? Like oil and gas is you stick a hole in the ground, you see what comes up, and then you try to sell it for more than it cost. It's the simplest business in the world until you get into oil field services when it starts to get complicated. So tell me what you guys do uh, and, and how you help that oil and gas come out of the ground. So we are uh, basically, we do all the services to be, to enable those uh, wells to produce oil and gas. So everything from exploration to production uh, for the operator. So the operator basically, especially in the areas where we are in the Middle East, usually they are the government or the national oil companies. They own the, 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 the oil and the gas. And basically we do all the services if you like for the people to simplify it, it's all the architecture and, and the plumbing of that, which is basically logging the wells, uh, uh, constructing the cement around the pipe, being able to get the oil out uh, using artificial lift completion equipment. Sometimes you have to frack the well, the formation, to be able to get the gas or the oil out of the ground and then put it into the pipeline. And usually the operator does that. And this is the kind of work that giant companies like Halliburton and, and Schlumberger and so on do as well, which is to Correct. say lots of different steps within the process of finding a well, drilling a well, finishing a well, and bringing it into production. Correct. Absolutely correct. And there is a lot of electronics, if you like, and subsurface engineering uh, quite complicated, but because people usually don't see it, they don't really appreciate it. But there is a lot of technological advancement that happened over the years uh, to be able to do that. And part of it is as well is to be able to see what's underground four or five kilometers or miles in, 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 in underground and how the best way to optimize that and get this at the most economical value. Now, I've spent um, a lot of time trying to understand the U.S. oil and gas uh, market and the technologies involved there. And I haven't spent much time working on, on, on stuff in the Middle East where, where, where your business is mostly. And certain to be sure, you work with some of the biggest companies in the world, not just the Saudi Aramco's of the world, but all of the major um, integrated oil companies, the IOCs uh, of the world, um, uh, ExxonMobil, Chevron, so on, um, uh, uh, and, and on and on, uh, uh, doing about, what is it, on a trailing basis, uh, $900 million in revenues. Um, but it, it, I'm trying to find the nicest way to say this. It seems to me that the, the operations in the Mideast, because there is so much oil, are not as complicated as the operations in Texas or in the Williston Basin in, in, you know, in, in the U.S., or in the Marsalis Shale, where there's a lot of fracking, there's a lot of horizontal drilling, uh, finding the oil that hasn't been exploited is much more difficult. Whereas in the Middle East, it has been traditionally simpler to find the oil, and it hasn't been as complicated, not as horizontal, and not as expensive. Is that fair? Yeah. Tell me yeah, I'm totally it's, wrong. No, no, it is absolutely fair. So if you like to, to, to define it, it's conventional and unconventional. Right. So the reservoir is basically what we call pressurized. And for the people to simplify it, then you have 
the, the, the normal reservoir or the traditional reservoir that is full of oil, the permeability and the, the rock basically is full of oil and that oil has a very good conduit or what we call permeability. So you drill the well. By the way, the, the well is high technological, which means could be offshore, could be land, could be horizontal. However, the flow of that oil and gas becomes very natural. And that's why the, what we call it's a green uh, 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 reservoir, which basically it's not green of a color of the hydrocarbon. It's basically it's easy to extract, which makes it very cost effective. So for you, you to just say it's, it's, you, it's typically just to, again, you, it's like sticking a straw on the ground. And if you're in the right place, oil is going to come up. Absolutely right. So and that's why the cost could go as low as four dollars or five dollars a barrel versus a $35, $40 a barrel in the U.S. Which you'd see in the, the Permian Basin or, yeah. Yeah, in the because Balkan here you have to, and it has as well a lower carbon footprint to produce it because you don't frack it. Um, is that changing? It is going to change over time, but now there's still a lot of oil and gas. And obviously the whole narrative changed that uh, abundance of oil and gas to basically leave it because of uh, uh, other part of the energy that will come into place, right? So there is a plenty of oil and gas that is conventional, especially in Saudi Arabia uh, and the gas like in Qatar. I mean, for people to just to understand, Qatar has 900 TCF of gas. in Trillion that cubic feet. That is how much they have. So that is enough for 100 years, right? So... Uh, and 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 uh, again, I, I, I told you before we started the interview. I don't, I don't care about the stock price, and I don't sort of don't really want to need, need to talk about today's oil market. But it is a true fact that that the conflict in Europe and in, in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and Russia has really changed the gas market, and probably really changed the uh, well has really changed the liquefied nat uh, 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 gas market, which didn't maybe have as much demand. Well, that's fair enough to say. Did not have the demand. Uh, that it does now and maybe never would have had that demand had it not been for a war shutting down a, a prolific pipeline supplying Europe. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you would not take LNG for people to understand. You not get, you get the compressed gas, you make it liquid, it costs you a very a fortune, and then you have to transport it, then you have to decassify it at the, at the station. Whether in the, in the case of the whole Europe, they just get the pipe, with gas in, already in it that they can connect right. to the house. And now they have to pay five, six times the price. So definitely that market would not have exploded like this, shouldn't have been the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's a fairly uh, amazing development in that market that I was always so skeptical of the LNG market, but here it is. And here we've yes. got Nat Gas at, at, you know, which, which seemed like it was stuck below $3, maybe even below $2 for years and years and years suddenly, you know, popping up this year to $10. And so the, the technology changes so much in the back end because there's interest in it because there's a need for it because the cost of, of LNG uh, uh, is suddenly, you know, a small part of, of, of what you get paid in the, at the end. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the spot market, as you people know, in Europe now, sometimes there was an LNG that was sold at $62. It's incredible. So it's incredible, right? And when it, the cost is like 2 to $3, right? So... But that's how and the issue as well is is the, the 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 readiness 
of the degasification in Europe, which is not ready. So it's not even the problem, even if they take more Which is to say, let me, let me re- paraphrase that. And you, uh, once again, please tell me when I'm wrong. But essentially what you're saying is you can make all the LNG in the world, but once you get to Europe, they don't have the offload capability to take Correct. it off the ships when it gets there. Absolutely. And they're building Absolutely. it like crazy. And they are building like crazy, but it takes two years to do. So the Germany, to be able to compensate that, it's not going to be before 2026 when they feel... Uh, adequately can replace the Russian gas. And that's why, unfortunately, people now are using coal, right? Which is, you're going worse uh, from the climate Carbon, point yeah. of view. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and, and at the same time, also rushing to to create renewables as well and a, a faster effort to get into solar and so on. Um, wh- how, why would a company hire your company rather than a Schlumberger or a Halliburton? In the Middle East, is obviously, they want a nationalization and a localization in a big way. We are considered national player. Uh, that's why we call ourselves that long name. Uh, and and national, uh, we are the, called the national champion. And obviously, the abbreviation of the name is Nasr, which means the uh, eagle in, 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 in Arabic. Uh, and uh, definitely, that name that's again being National Energy Services Reunited. Yes. So like we're reuniting the whole, all the countries and we are the nest, the eagle of all the countries. And uh, so we are local. We invest locally a lot. Uh, we hire a lot of local people. And definitely there is as well a room for everyone. You know, it's, uh, we are all today maxed out in our capacity. And I think uh, going forward, the market is going to explode in, in, in the sense of everybody would need everyone to be able to get all this uh, uh, oil and gas out of the ground. I mean, there would be a lack of um, talent as well. So why are you in Houston now, not uh, Oh, we are purely, I am, I spent 10% of my time in, in, in the Middle East, and we just have a headquarter, small headquarter here for investors. For the, we are the only public company in the Middle East on New York, and a lot of people don't know that. There is not a single company in the Middle East in any industry on New York or NASDAQ, except us. So there is obviously a lot, of, yeah, a lot of people coming from, from our shareholders that would like to come to us. And the third part, which is important, is all the majority of the technology and the knowledge and the know-how comes from Houston. So it allows me to do a lot of partnership in, in the area because we are basically here. We are only backs- five, five people here. I guess that backs up what I was saying, which is that it's, it's so much harder to get oil and gas out of the ground in the US we've had to have better technologies. Yes, absolutely. And the majority, but the brain and everything is really, is really in Houston, right? I mean, there was a mix between Europe and, and, and the US, and it's more and more toward US now, obviously, because of the ESG over the past 10 years. So you only have, uh, if you like, the R&D is between three countries in Europe now, mainly uh, Norway, uh, some of the old stuff in Germany, some of the electronics in France. But in the U.S., Houston is really the hub now for a lot of the R&D and the brain uh, around oil and gas. All right. So given the simplicity of the um, hydrocarbon and geological structure of the Middle East and the complications of the technology that you're acquiring in Houston and and, and trying to understand, what, what, what's the coolest thing that's got you excited about the technologies that you're going to be able to deploy in the Middle East that will be needed there? We actually need all the technology because it's a matter of age. Know, it's exactly, it's exactly the aging of the field. So if you are pioneering 
a lot of those technology coming all the time, that's exactly what they need to be able to come up with the same production portfolio because the more the, this reservoir age, the more technology you need. I'll, I'll uh, use the U.S. corollary, right, where, where Rockefeller found the first oil in the U.S. In, in Titusville, the first serious production in Titusville, Western Pennsylvania, which we now call the Marcellus Shale, which is to say the Rockefeller got the easy oil out of uh, Titusville, but yeah. the more complicated stuff, the more complicated technology had to be deployed in the same region uh, with different geological formations or sometimes the same ones to squeeze those last drops in which there were many uh, in the Marcellus Shale. Yes, correct. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, when you look, for example, at the horizontal drilling, today, 60% of the wells in the Middle East are horizontal as well. Really? Not, not to be able to that get like a very, yeah, not to be able to get a very tiny, but now some of those fields, they know why would I wait to drill vertical and drill horizontal after that to get, why don't I drill monster wells? So these wells uh, sometimes produce 15,000 barrels per day. You know, wow, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, ginormous. Yeah. Um, how many how many zones will there be in that in that hydraulic? Uh, or how long will those hydraulic wells be? Ten thousand lateral usually. Ten thousand meters. Ten thousand feet. feet. Okay. That's the, the lateral, the, and they drill like uh, first uh, around ten thousand feet into the reservoir into the formation subsurface. Then they go laterally by ten thousand feet. And you know some of the wells in, in in of the gas, like in Qatar, they produce three hundred million scuff per day. That's just so. So they will do. And how deep are those wells? Uh, twelve to fourteen thousand feet. So you'll go twelve to fourteen thousand feet down. And these are vertical wells. And so you'll go. Yes. So that's about uh, three miles down, or almost almost yes. three miles down, and then two miles horizontal. No, some of the wells of the gas are vertical. And right, right, but, right, but, but for the horizontal wells, the horizontal Sorry. wells will go will go horizontally almost two miles, which is probably a dozen fracking zones, which is unbelievable. That's that is as complicated as some of the horizontal wells uh, in the Permian Basin. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You have you have everything. I mean, that's what people have to uh, to remember because of the Middle East is so rich in oil and gas, they have everything. They have all the reservoir, all type of complexity, but they have obviously the easy stuff, which is that's what they're going to go after. But the gas, they do both very easy gas, which is like Qatar offshore, very prolific. And they have as well the tight where they have to frack it. Yeah, so if I'm right here and I don't want to get too deep, into that, I've already, I'm already well deep into this, uh, no pun intended. Um, it seems like in some places in the Middle East, they're spending a lot of money to create complicated wells. Uh, not that they have to to get anything out, but they'll get so much more production out of those wells because they've got they've found the way to just soak up every last drop under the ground. Uh, then then uh, they'll be the most prolific wells in the world. Yes, correct. I mean, it's a mix of both. Yes, absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating company uh, and a fascinating conversation. We're grateful for your time, Sharif Fada is the CEO of National Energy Services Reunited. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Right, when the drill down continues, we're going to tell you one number, the bite, one number that tells us a whole lot about National Energy Services Reunited right after this. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And if you enjoy the Drill Down podcast, perhaps someone else you know might enjoy the Drill Down podcast. Tell them, tell your friends or leave a review on Apple iTunes and let the rest of the world know what it is that you like about this show, why you have given us your valuable time and why someone else might enjoy it as well. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about this fascinating company, National Energy Services Reunited Corporation. What a a horrible name. Yeah. I like Nesser, though. The, the, you know, the ticker symbol. The Eagle. Yeah, the National Eagle. Services Reunited. Um, uh, fascinating company here. So I'll tell you what the number is. The number is one. Okay. And that's how many oil companies they deal with in Saudi Arabia. You know uh, why? <laughs> why is that, Corey? Because there's only one oil company <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. These are all national oil companies uh, they service. So there's only one customer in every one country. Right. Uh, another interesting thing. Um, one is also the number of Academy Awards. There will be blood earned for a uh, best actor. Did you see that movie? Of course. Yeah, it was great. Paul Thomas Anderson. Weird, weird 2007 movie. Um, didn't make a ton of money in the box office. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis uh, won an Academy Award for that. Um, but uh, th- you can get a real understanding of how oil and gas works in that movie. Because early in that movie, should I ruin the scene? Yes, do it. Early in that movie, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character is, uh, uh, Daniel Plainview is the name of the character, is digging a hole. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the movie, it's in New Mexico. Uh, he's digging a hole where no one thinks there's oil. And he falls and breaks his leg. And he's... he's oh, and that he's, was such but, a painful scene. Yeah. Right. But, he's, but the way he drills the oil, he digs a hole as deep mm-hmm. as he can. Then he drops some dynamite in it and runs and hopes some oil comes up. Yep. And the oil business isn't much more complicated than that, really. It's just a little more technologically uh, um, involved than digging a, a ditch with a shovel and dropping dynamite in. So many aspects of this conversation I found fascinating. But I, I, I didn't realize Nesser, N-E-S-R, was really kind of like a United Nations of these oil field services companies for the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is not a giant company, uh, no. given the size of its customers. Um, but like I said, Halliburton and, and Schlumberger are much bigger, and it sounds like the services they offer are quite similar. Uh, but nonetheless, a, a fascinating conversation. Um, yeah. And, a, you know, an industry that's, that is is not going anywhere um, uh, and, and fascinating to talk about, at least to me. Um, for these guys, and like I said, it's, it's not a giant company. I mean, it's got a market cap of, of, $500 million um, uh, with an enterprise value of about a billion dollars. So they've got a bunch of debt too. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, a great conversation. We're grateful to have that CEO here. And we're grateful to have you listening to the show. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson has stitched this together. He's our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.